Welcome to the Sui Generous Show, your unique perspective on all things related to your civil rights and the criminal injustice system. With Eric Merrill, I'm attorney Brian Jones, criminal defense and civil rights warrior. Today in segment one, WOSU NPR News here in Columbus, Ohio has released an in-depth report on race in the Columbus Police Department. A 13-year-old was shot by Salt Lake City, Salt Lake City Police Department and Curtis Flowers finds justice after 24 years in prison. In segment two, as promised, we'll be taking a deep dive into the complex subject of collateral consequences of a criminal conviction. To make sure you don't miss an episode, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, YouTube, or Spotify, and follow us on social media. Look to tlobj.com and all of our social media outlets for information about your civil rights and the criminal injustice system. Erica, did you see in the news this week that WOSU NPR News released a two-part in-depth analysis of race in the Columbus Division of Police? Yes, I did. And it looks like the results were disturbing. But I, I will say how interesting that they have this study come out about what happens on the inside of, of, of the police officer's world, as opposed to just how racism is handled between police officers and regular civilians. Well, I think this also is part and parcel of what we saw with the LA County Sheriff's Department. What we learned last week was that several of the uh, racial minority officers were suffering discrimination and abuse from their white counterparts as a result of the gangs that are rampant in the LA County Sheriff's Department. So now WOSU does uh, an analysis of the Columbus Police Department and finds the same kind of behavior. It's almost as if this is systemic among police departments across the nation. Well, I would, I would think that there are going to be a lot more studies like this going on across the country. Well, you hope so. You, you would hope that news agencies would latch on to this movement, this momentum in, uh, in racial disparity and use it as an opportunity to tell the stories that have been in existence for decades, but have just been swept under the rug after administration after administration. You're right. You would hope so. And it seems like things are starting to come to light. We have a lot of the information from, from the recent studies. I'd love to hear about what the findings were. So part one of the analysis was about the need for reform in the police department um, and the lack of representation on the force. What they found was about 10% of the department, Columbus Police Department, is Black. About 28% of the population of the city of Columbus is Black. Now, on the other side of that coin, 87% of the department is white, even though only 60% of the population of Columbus is white. Now, according to department records, since 2010, CPD has hired at most seven black officers per class. That's seven new black officers per police class. And one officer reported that the department claims that black recruits are genuine, generally less qualified than their white counterparts. Now, until June of 2020, the Columbus Police Department had no black commanders. There were no black deputy chiefs, and the chief is white. Only 7% of lieutenants and 8% of sergeants are black. Now, in this regard, it's not just a hiring issue. 
This is an opportunity issue as well. For example, only two black officers were approved to work coveted jobs at the nationwide arena compared to 26 white officers. Nationwide arena, as you know, is uh, where the Columbus Blue Jackets play. And those, those positions policing these after hours events at the arena are highly coveted because they're, they're, they're very well paid positions. Now only two black officers have had the opportunity to do that as compared to 26 of their white counterparts. If that's not racial disparity in action, I don't know what is. That sounds unbelievable. What did the chief say about these results? So pretty typical response that we see time and time again from white leaders. You know, if you see something, if you can prove that there's racial disparity, please come forward. He says, uh, if you have evidence of racial actions, please report it to internal affairs or the director of public safety so that it can be investigated and discipline will happen. But what part two of the report shows is that the CPD's internal affairs and internal affairs and complaint process is less than ideal to say the least. Yeah, I mean, that is, I've, I've heard him speak before on TV and you know, he, he really does kind of sound like a racist, but that's, that's just from the responses he's giving. It's, it doesn't seem like he's empathetic. It doesn't really seem like he has any answers. And so um, what happened with the rest of the report? I would say this, Erica, he's at a minimum tone deaf to the realities of our system today. Now, in segment two, WOSU reported that in part two of their expose, WOSU addressed the issues of reporting and uh, the relationships between internal investigations, equal employment office, and the fraternal order of police and the police union. Now, ideally, an officer who is subject to racism has four options available. He can report that to a higher up. She can report it to internal affairs. They can report it to an equal employment office, or they can report it to a police union. Now, the reality is that black officers told WOSU that none of these options were realistic. The EEO complaints are investigated by the internal affairs agents. So you've now gone from four available options down to three because one of them is referred to one of the other. Now that raises serious doubts about the independence and reliability of the investigations themselves. Officers describe how reporting racist acts results in a target on their back. Exact same consequence that we see when it comes to the LA County Sheriff's Department. When they report, they get more consequences. Now one officer even described how reporting uh, to a supervisor or rather reporting a supervisor's racist comments, he was targeted as a problem officer in that anytime he had a complaint, he was relieved of duty and the investigation would drag on for years on end. In 24 years of service, that officer had spent a total of five years waiting for complaints to be resolved. Disciplinary records from March, 19, March of 2019 to March of 2020 show that while black officers only make up 10% of the force, they represent 13% of the disciplinary cases. Now, while white officers make 86% of the force, they only received 81% of the disciplinary cases. This has been known to CPD brass since at least 2013, when the then chief remarked that on facts that black and female officers 
were more likely to commit disciplinary infractions at, at a higher degree than their white counterparts. So essentially blaming them for being lower quality officers. It's important to note as well that the top decision makers in CPD meet out the discipline and they are predominantly white. Additionally, black officers face discipline are often left in the cold by the Fraternal Order of Police as the union will only represent one party to a disciplinary matter at a time. So if a black officer makes a report of racist conduct against, conduct against one of his white counterparts, the, the Fraternal Order of Police almost every single time chooses to represent the white officer in that complaint. Note, however, that the, the Fraternal Order of Police denies that there's any systemic racism. So their own self-reporting of their motives is uh, obviously questionable. I mean, how can you say with those numbers that there isn't systemic racism going on in their department? It's, it seems irrefutable. You know, Erica, the funny thing is, is that ostriches don't actually bury their heads in the sand when there's a predator nearby. Ostriches are fierce, fierce animals, but they have a reputation for burying their head in the sand when there's something scary or, or a predator nearby. I think the reality is, is that the, the top brass at Columbus Police Department are that proverbial ostrich, the, the fearful, wrong, backwards ostrich that does bury its head in the sand when faced with an obvious flaw in their system. Well, I mean, you've, you've given me a hint of this, but uh, with, with some of your responses, but what is your biggest takeaway from all of this reporting? Well, first, I think black officers agree that until a civilian review board is in place, there will never be a truly independent investigation into the rampant racism within the Columbus Police Department. Second, racial issues are a cross-section of the systemic problems with policing in general, meaning they are both a conscious individual phenomenon and an unconscious invisible process. Racism has to be confronted on all fronts. We have to hold law enforcement especially to the highest of standards. They are law enforcement. They're the ones that are supposed to be making sure people follow the rules. And when we see time and time again, the police officers refuse to follow the rules, it breeds contempt for the entire system. It's time for police to be purged of their shameful racist past, their roles in perpetuating Jim Crow laws, of approving and participating in lynchings across America, their role in the injustice in the courts through fake evidence and testifying, the, the third degree applied in the beatings and brutalization of individuals accused of crimes for the purpose of interrogation, planting evidence, rape and sexual assault of people out in the field. Time and time again, we see police officers engaged in misconduct. And the, the, the small number of bad apples argument that we see from top brass over and over again just doesn't hold water when every single day of every single week of every single month, of every single year now, we see a new officer engaging in misconduct and nobody's coming forth to put him or her in the proper place, which is a place where they are receiving the justice that anybody else engaging in that sort of conduct would receive in the same circumstances. I agree. I, I, I think it's, 
It's unbelievable. I'm glad that there's a lot of light being shed on it now. I think this is a small drop in a great big ocean of police departments that need to be investigated. And you know, more of these situations need to be brought to light and more change needs to happen. Well, you're absolutely right about that, Erica. And staying on the subject of police misconduct, I think we were all horrified to learn of the tragedy of Lyndon Cameron, a 13-year-old child who has Asperger's syndrome, who was shot in multiple times in the back by police officers in Salt Lake City, Utah. Well, I have to tell you, this is especially heartbreaking for me to hear about. Um, I have a, I had a, a brother who was autistic and he was, he was a giant person. He did pass away. Um, and he was probably 6'4", you know, weighed 250 pounds. And sometimes we'd be out in public. And I remember one incident where, um, you know, he just threw himself on the ground because my mom wouldn't let him buy a packet of sunflower seeds to plant and other seeds for flowers. He just kept picking the big expensive packages. And she's like, no, we're not doing that. Um, so he just flipped out. And you could hear him throughout the entire Walmart. It was crazy. Uh, but he had a, had other incidences like that before where military police officers, because they lived on the base, would, you know, come in and, you know, if he had a breakdown, they would, they would try to subdue him. Now, luckily, that's the right thing to do, where you subdue someone and, and, and find out what the situation is, not just shoot somebody in the back. Absolutely. This is why de-escalation training is so critical for moving the ball forward with regards to holding police accountable and making sure that civilians aren't murdered by police. Now, did the family call for help? In this case, yes. Lyndon's mother had called for a crisis intervention team as he was suffering a mental breakdown and she was unable to be there to help him. When officers showed up to Lyndon's door, he ran away because he was scared. Uh, there had been no report of any weapon, no threat by Lyndon, um, yet officers opened fire and shot him in the back. And he survived, but he's presently in critical care with serious injuries. I'm just heartbroken to hear that. Um, what did the officers have to say about this incident? I mean, what, what could they say? So the department is holding comment until it completes its investigation. But public comments are calling into question uh, Lyndon's mother's assertion that he was unarmed. Um, this is, again, another example of the police trying to impugn the character of the victim, this time uh, a child with Asperger's syndrome, uh, and make their, the police officer's behavior seem justified after the fact. This is an example of why many folks out there are protesting and asking for a redirect of funding away from police department toys like tanks and tear gas to real solutions, like staffing social workers and counselors who can come to a scene like this and de-escalate uh, what is obviously a mental health situation and not a public safety problem. So does this echo the situation in Rochester, New York with the death of Daniel Prude? Absolutely. And in that tragic case, again, a family member sought the assistance 
of the government for help with a loved one in a mental health crisis. And that ended with Mr. Prude suffocating on a mesh bag, nude and handcuffed in the street with the hands of Rochester Police Department. It's an outrage not only because of Mr. Prude's race, he was black, but also because police officers in America consistently fail to choose de-escalation. They choose homicide to address issues with civilians. They aren't trained to de-escalate. They are trained to look at us as enemy combatants in our streets and neighborhoods as a war zone. And that is just not the right way to look at policing. We're asking a commercial bus driver to fly a 747. And it's completely beyond their ability. America needs to keep the issues of race and mental health in the forefront of their minds as they head to the ballot box. This knows Americans need to keep the issues of race and mental health in the forefront of their minds as they head to the ballot box this November and consider what priorities they want to see in their local policing agencies. Because we speak to positions of power through our vote and we should all be heard on this subject. The lives of you and I are on the line when we make these decisions at the ballot box. Absolutely. I, I couldn't agree with you more. And it, honestly, look, we talk about these situations over and over again, and you would think that these police departments would add somebody that goes out on calls like this that is qualified to help out with mental health situations. And I know they don't always know at first, but it sounds like in these situations we've talked about that they, they had a pretty good idea. Um, especially with the family that was calling them and, and had the information. So I, I, I don't know, I, I feel like there, there's, I don't know if that's the solution, but that something needs to happen because as you mentioned, they, they aren't equipped to do everything that they're expected to do. And their training is just to treat this like a battlefield. So why are they going to these types of calls without somebody that is equipped to handle the other types of situations. That's exactly right. And when you have police unions pushing for ever larger budgets for greater and greater um, protective equipment and weaponry to, to suppress what they believe to be an insurgent population, which is really just civilians living in houses. Uh, you've got a major problem and you've got the, you're standing at the precipice of a slippery slope into totalitarianism. Um, and I, I fear for the future of our country. Um, when, we have, when we have police officers looking at civilians the way that our police look at civilians, when we have them riding around in tanks with fully automatic weapons, um, when they kill civilians with impunity and never suffer any consequences as the result, we have, we have strayed from the path of democracy, justice, and freedom. Um, you know, I believe it was Benjamin Franklin that said, uh, he who would be willing to give up his freedom for a small bit of safety does not deserve any freedom at all. And we are now 20 years later 
getting what we deserve after what we did in the wake of 9-11 is, is kind of the reality. And as this podcast is coming out um, right soon after the anniversary of that tragic day, uh, what I would like to comment on is the fact that politicians, those who believe in an authoritarian regime, believe that that sort of authoritarianism is appropriate in America, have used that tragic event and used the, the death of those thousands of innocent individuals to strip us of our freedom. We have lost more constitutional rights. We have lost more of our freedoms in the last 18 years than we had in the previous 200. And it needs to turn back. We as people need to step up and say, this is enough. We are not going to tolerate it any longer. We are not going to be murdered in the streets. We are not going to tolerate this any longer. Now is the time. Now, fortunately, there was a little bit of good news this week, Erica. And we talked about Curtis Flowers in a previous episode. Uh, black man who was prisoned for over 24 years, went through six trials where he was repeatedly accused of murder, uh, had his conviction overturned by the Supreme Court just a few weeks ago. Uh, and we have now found that the charges against Curtis Flowers will be dropped and he is a free man. So we want to give a big congratulations to him and his legal team. Wow, that is amazing and, and definitely congratulations to them. I am really curious, however, how somebody can be tried six times for the same crime. So Mr. Flowers was convicted uh, so many times because of racism in the jury selection on the part of the prosecutor. And each time the prosecutor continued to engage in his racist behavior, his conviction was overturned over and over again. Uh, he also received several mistrials due to prosecutorial misconduct that the prosecutor chose to retry. Now through all of Mr. Flowers' trials, spanning two decades, 61 out of 72 jurors were white. In Mr. Flowers' most recent trial, he was convicted and sentenced to death, but his lawyers appealed and the United States Supreme Court ruled that the prosecutor, Doug Evans, had unconstitutionally excluded black people from serving on that jury. Now at that time, the DA has finally chosen to dismiss the case rather than try it again. Now in their decision, the Supreme Court of the United States declared that equal justice under the law requires a criminal trial free of racial discrimination in the jury selection process. So this is a, this is a bit of a new precedent um, touching on an area of law that the Supreme Court has really avoided for many decades, which is jury selection and jury composition. So we're very proud of the Supreme Court for coming out and saying that uh, a jury free of discrimination is a critical aspect uh, of the right to a trial as guaranteed by the Sixth Amendment. The way that this has happened, he's not acquitted yet? That's correct. This case is dismissed without any final resolution on the question of whether Mr. Flowers committed or did not commit the alleged murders or whether it was somebody else. The passage of time has revealed that several of the state's key witnesses were compromised. 
Significantly, a key witness recanted his testimony on a podcast called Into the Dark, which brought to attention Mr. Flowers' case and poked holes in many of the state's allegations. The witness specifically described his testimony as being make-believe. Now, I agree with Mr. Flowers' defense team that noted that as time has passed, more evidence corroborating Mr. Flowers' innocence has continued to come to light, and yet Mr. Flowers will never receive the benefit of a resolution to clear his name. However, as they also noted, this is a case that never should have occurred in the first place and has lasted entirely too long. So we congratulate Mr. Flowers and his defense team, and we believe that he is an innocent man. It sounds like congratulations are in order and that's the way you have to think about it going forward, especially since this poor man has been dragged through hell over the last couple of decades, it sounds like. Um, so I, I'm really glad that that has come to an end and he can finally have a fresh start. We're so happy for him. Moving on to segment two. Our featured topic this week is collateral consequences, as promised during our last episode. Now, Erica, only eight of the 50 states in the United States of America ignore conviction record revision authority, what many of us know as expungement or sealing the record of your criminal allegations. This means the vast majority of Americans, those including those of us who live here in the great state of Ohio, have the opportunity to relieve some of the consequences of a criminal conviction in the future. However, the record of a criminal conviction itself is only part of the consequences that those who are convicted of crime suffer. There are other collateral consequences which we will explore today. Okay, so I was asking you about this earlier and you know, reading it, trying to figure out exactly what are collateral consequences. I mean, it sounds like it might be exactly what it sounds like, but I know that you've got really great legal examples to share with us today. We were talking about this earlier, Erica, and it's, it is a, it's a complex area of law. You know, people think of criminal defense lawyers as somebody that you know, goes in and investigates a case and maybe tries a case or negotiates with the prosecutor. But the breadth and depth of criminal law is, is, is incredibly large, you know, surprisingly large to many outsiders. And collateral consequences makes up a significant portion of it. And it's all of the ways that the criminal code affects all of our civil rights and privileges as people who live here in the United States of America and the great state of Ohio. Now, a collateral consequence is a civil legal disability that's imposed as the result of a criminal conviction, whether that conviction was a felony, a misdemeanor, whether at jail time, probation, fine, whatever. So the, the direct consequences of a conviction are prison, jail, a fine, probation, the conditions of probation, the hoops that you have to jump through during the course of a term of probation. Those are the direct consequences of a criminal conviction. Collateral consequences are everything else that comes alongside a criminal conviction. It's a broad category that can apply whether the conviction is a felony or a misdemeanor. 
One of the classic examples of a collateral consequence is the BMV penalties associated with most moving violations. Now, a driver receives a speeding ticket. The driver is convicted of that offense. The driver is subject to traffic penalties through the court. They have a fine imposed upon them. And if they do it multiple times, they can be ordered to go into a remedial driving school. Now, the clerk of courts will forward the record of that conviction to the Ohio Bureau of Motor Vehicles, who then imposes additional consequences. They issue points, points on your license. And if you have too many license uh, points on your license, you can have your driver's license suspended and then have to pay reinstatement fees. These BMV fees are a total separate and collateral consequence to getting a speeding ticket or an OVI. There's nothing criminal, there's nothing in the criminal code that authorizes or prevents these consequences. It's either, they either come from the administrative code or another section of the Ohio Revised Code. Wow, I mean, it, it sounds like the list of collateral consequences is endless. Are there any others that we should be aware of? Well, if you're charged with a criminal offense, it's critically important that you communicate your current job, your job goals, your career goals, your training and experience, so that your attorney can advise you on the vast array of collateral consequences. Because a lot of the consequences that are imposed for a criminal conviction that are collateral to that conviction, that aren't directly related to the offense itself, fall into the area of vocation. So the loss or restriction of a professional license for attorneys, nurses, doctors, electricians, um, carpenters, anybody who has a professional license, that license can be affected by certain convictions. Individuals can become ineligible for public funds, such as college grants, student loans, public housing, and other forms of assistance. Individuals who are convicted of felonies in the state of Ohio become ineligible to vote. They become ineligible to serve on a jury. Deportation for many immigrants and loss of immigration status for those who are trying to immigrate to the United States. Loss of employment eligibility, both on a categorical level, so entire categories of jobs become inaccessible to those convicted of certain crimes, but also on an employer-by-employer -employer basis. Some employers refuse to hire individuals who have been convicted of particular offenses. You can lose your ability to travel internationally. Erica, did you know that you can lose your ability to travel to Canada if you have been convicted of a first offense OVI? I did not know that. Uh, that that sounds like that's a, a very harsh consequence for a first offense. I mean, I'm not an expert, is it? Well, I mean, if you live in a border state, absolutely. Um, you know, for, for those individuals who live in, say, Alabama, maybe it's not that much of a consequence. Um, but if you live in Detroit and you want to go over to Windsor, or you live in Buffalo and you travel to Toronto regularly, those are very serious consequences because you're going to arrive to the border checkpoint and those Mounties are going to say, 
I'm sorry, eh? You're not able to come into the country. We'll miss you. Or something like that. It's probably a terrible Canadian accent, but you get the idea. It's not the best. <laughs> so, I mean, I don't want to cut you off. I'm just curious if there is anything the accused can do to avoid these types of collateral consequences. Well, there, there is. So first and foremost, an accused person must make their attorney aware of the variety of, of things that they do in their lives, their vocation, their recreation, their travel habits, and then follow their attorney's advice about are those things going to be affected by a conviction? Now, secondly, you have to hire an attorney that you trust to be aware of the collateral consequences of a conviction. Every single criminal defense attorney, if they are considering entering a plea for their client and their client is agreeing to a plea deal, should check the collateral consequences database to see if this particular offense has a collateral consequence and what those collateral consequences are. Advise your client of what those consequences are. Third, you must fight your case at trial. If you enter a guilty plea, you give up the ability to challenge these consequences down the road. If you plea out to avoid prison or you plea out to save your license, you may regret that for the rest of your life. You must mitigate or defeat that case at trial. A trial guarantees an appeal. It guarantees another chance. Remember, Mr. Flowers had six chances to prove his innocence and is now a free man. Now, absent extraordinary remedies, the collateral consequences cannot be fixed after the conviction. And absent something like a pardon or uh, an executive uh, an executive decision, an expungement, or a sealing of the record, those consequences are going to remain forever. And in many situations, even the expungement or sealing of the record will not prevent the collateral consequences from following you for the rest of your life. A skilled defense attorney will consider those consequences as part of your overall defense. They'll ask you about things like your employment, your professional guidelines, your rights, your desire to own firearms and possess firearms and things of that nature. My clients often laugh at the broad scope of information that I ask during an initial consultation, but I do it for a reason. We want to identify as many of these risks to our client as we possibly can at the outset. So over the course of our defense, we can protect them from the long-term collateral consequences of a conviction. Now, sadly, some consequences like public ostracization, social media publicity, and the loss of friendships and community are collateral consequences that can't be avoided, nor can much be done to prevent how others treat those who are accused and convicted of a crime. Regardless, there are many support groups out there and communities that have grown in response to support those who have dealt with or are dealing with the social stigma of a conviction. No person is entitled to be stalked, or rather, no person is entitled to stalk, harass, assault, defame, or libel anybody else. And there could be a civil lawsuit available to those who have been convicted but are suffering these sorts of collateral consequences. Some of these consequences can 
even put an offender's life at risk, such as appearing on the sex offender registry that's publicized and flyers are put out in neighborhoods. This is why you must hire a skilled sexual assault defense attorney if you are facing those sorts of sexual allegations. The collateral consequences of these crimes in particular are onerous and they follow you forever. Do not put your or your loved one's life at risk by going with a cut rate option and limiting your literal ability to live where you want to, go where you want to, and not be fearful that somebody will take a baseball bat to you as you're walking down the street. Because I have known people who have chosen not to hire our office and suffered that collateral consequence. Well, I mean, that's, that's really great news for your clients. And, you know, I, I, this is a time I typically would just encourage people, if you have a situation, a criminal uh, problem that <laughs> you need some advice on, don't talk to your neighbors, don't just go trust what they tell you in court, uh, have somebody there on your side. Call the office of Brian Jones. They are very, obviously, very, very skilled, and they keep up with all of the latest rules, regulations, laws. They know the strategies that are going to help get you the best outcome. And so if for some reason you do have collateral, getting back to our uh, interview here, um, if for some reason you do have uh, some collateral consequences, is it just like any other decision at trial where you can appeal it? Is there anything you could do at all to help with those situations? Remedies for those suffering from collateral consequences depend upon the specific consequences they're facing. There are several remedies um, in Ohio that include record sealing, expungement, executive clemency or pardon, um, or a CQE, a certification of qualification for employment. Um, that is a uh, eligible for those who have been one year after completion of a felony sentence or six months after a misdemeanor. So these are the sorts of things that you can get through the, through the court. You can also have your firearms rights restored through a, both a state and federal process. It's key that you go through both processes. Driver's licenses can be reinstated by taking point reducing classes. Um, obviously you have to pay for your insurance, pay your um, court fees and retest. Professional licenses are a key area that we practice in. So administrative law runs adjacent to criminal defense. And so you can go in front of the nursing board or the board of education and fight for your license in front of those administrative boards. You can have your attorney craft consent decrees um, in order to work towards rehabilitation and reinstatement if you have suffered a collateral consequence through a conviction. Um, and voting rights in Ohio are automatically restored once an individual is released uh, from probation or custody. And some consequences are not fixable. For example, uh, a conviction for child endangering is a permanent bar from ever fostering or adopting a child in the state of Ohio. The record itself cannot be sealed and like domestic violence, a future offense is enhanceable. Uh, this is why we again encourage people to come out from under the boot of a collateral consequence and talk with a lawyer. See what options are available to you. 
because oftentimes there are options, but these consequences don't just go away for the most part. Every case is fact dependent, unique upon that particular person's conviction and circumstances. Um, but we can often do something about those circumstances and relieve those consequences. Well, that is, that is good news that there are some things that you can do to fight those repercussions of um, having the collateral uh, consequences. So let's, uh, let's, let's talk about what's happening in the future next week. That's a great idea, Erica. So next week, we're going to be back with a sui generis perspective on the next big thing in civil rights and criminal justice, as well as a discussion of de-escalation and mental health training and why it's key to all players in the criminal injustice system from law enforcement officers to attorneys. Now, in order for you to become more informed about racial inequities in policing, stay informed about the latest in police killings of civilians, police and government accountability, and the collateral consequences of criminal convictions, as well as all of your constitutional and civil rights, check out tlobj.com. Find us on Facebook, facebook.com Central Ohio Criminal Defense, and at TLOBJ on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. If you want one of your questions to be answered on one of our shows, make sure you comment below, and we'll make sure to address your question in one of our future shows. Erica, thank you for joining me today. And as my grandpa always said, don't do anything I wouldn't do. But if you do, and you get caught, call me. I'll defend your rights as I would want mine defended.